0: It happened this way in early November of 1975. Some of you can think back, back to 1975. Many of you weren't even thought of (laughs) by then, but 1975, it was early November, and uh, it was a small town in northern Mexico, and there were 75 convicts who were imprisoned in Saltillo Prison. And they had gotten together, these 75 prisoners, and decided that they were going to plan an escape. So they spent many weeks planning, and 75 of them started digging a secret tunnel that was designed to bring them up at the other side of the wall of the prison so that they would be able to then escape. And so it took many weeks of planning, and they began in early November to dig that secret tunnel They had a plan, they had a purpose, they had a destination. So it took them about five months to dig this tunnel. One after the other, one day after the other, digging and taking the dirt out and meticulously spreading it out so no one would detect what they were up to. And then, about five months later, on April 18th, 1976, they spent the whole winter digging. They finally reached their destination, the end of the tunnel. And the last person in there was digging out, and he he dug up, and the end of the tunnel didn't quite end up where they were hoping. Yes, it was outside of the prison walls, but as they broke through the ground and crawled up, they found themselves in the courtroom of the local justice where all 75 had recently been convicted and sent to jail. And at that moment, there was a trial underway, and so the judge and the lawyers were kind of astounded and stunned, and so the judge took them and held them aside and briefly and very um, quickly just reconvicted them and sent them all back to prison. What are the chances of that happening? Now these men, they had a plan, and they had a purpose, they had a destination. But along the way, they got a little sidetracked, didn't they? I don't think their original plan was to end up in the courtroom. And so, in a way, we see that our journey with God, our journey we call discipleship, which is what we've been talking about all through our study of Mark, in some ways can get sidetracked. We might start well, we might start with all the right intentions, and we have a plan and we have a destination. We know where it is that we're heading, of course. But sometimes life can get us off track. And sometimes we can end up being surprised where we find ourselves along the way, just like the 75 prisoners. You know, so as believers, as followers of Jesus, we need to consistently check our bearings to kind of get our compass in line once again. We always know our destination And we believe here that our destination is secure. But along the way, we can often get a little discouraged, maybe somewhat disillusioned, for some of us a little depressed, sometimes a bit disheartened, or even sometimes disgruntled. And fill in another word that starts with D if you want. and Just fill it in there. But we need to be reminded often of the importance of the journey. You know, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. I think it's one we've all heard before. Discipleship is kind of like that. We often use the word sanctification, that our position in Christ, our justification, is secure, so we know our destination because of it. But the journey along the way, this life that we live in Christ, the scripture says it's no longer us who live but Christ in me, that that life is now a journey and it begins, yes, with a single step. The Christian life may seem hard, it may seem difficult at times because it is and I think all of us are a testimony to that. Just on Wednesday night, we had a time of great testimony and sharing and fellowship here and Thanksgiving Eve service, and many of you were willing to just kind of share and be vulnerable with the rest of us and let us know some things that were going on in your life, but still praising God through the storm. But life, even in Christ, can sometimes even seem impossible. But yet, what we need to be reminded of is that it is a journey, We have the destination in mind, but this journey of a 1,000 miles, as it seems, always begins with just a single step. But another reminder is this, that that single step is one that we take once when we decide to be disciples. We are believers in Christ, but then when we make that decision to be a disciple, it's a decision that we make, but you know what? It's a decision that we are to make every day. We get up every day. And are we deciding to follow him? That is the first step, the single step that begins our journey of a thousand miles. So you know, last week we were talking about discipleship. We talked about how uh, in our passage in Mark chapter 8 it was the turning point. Remember we talked about how it was a pivotal point in the whole story of Jesus and his disciples when Peter Correctly identified Jesus and answered his question. He said to the disciples, "Who do you say that I am?" Remember that. And Peter correctly identified him, and said, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." He said, "You are the Christ," and Jesus said, "Yes." In a matter of speaking, yes. As a matter of fact, I am. And so, in a way, he said yes. And he want then he said to confirm that he was going to reveal to them his glory. He was going to reveal to them a picture, a glimpse of the kingdom. Remember he said that some of you won't even taste death before you see the kingdom come in all its power and glory. That's what we're going to see. It picks up today. The transfiguration. It's a mysterious event in the life of Jesus and the disciples. We're going to look at that. But that's just the beginning of our passage today in Mark chapter 9. And so what I want to do is this i want to do something different because we're biting off a big chunk of Scripture today. The whole chapter of, of Mark 9, it's about 50 verses. I want to do it in three stages. There's going to be three separate parts to our passage. And I'm going to read each section and then we'll talk about it. I think sometimes it'll, it'll get lost if we kind of read all of it together. And so I want to read it in three separate sections and talk about it. But it's also amazing the way God will often... You know, he works along with his word, his living word, and seeing what's going on in the life of the church to see how it fits in. And so the structure of our passage today very simply goes along with the three words that we hold as our core values, that we learn together the truth about God, and and then we grow in our faith and our trust in him, and then we serve And so this whole passage of Mark chapter 9 kind of follows that flow. There is this stream of the theme of discipleship through it all. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, bringing his disciples along, teaching them what must happen before he gets there. Remember we talked about that, that it was a pivotal point last week in the whole story because they are now making their way To Jerusalem, and Jesus begins to tell the disciples all that needs to happen, that he is going to have to suffer, that he, yes, is the Messiah. He was correctly identified by the disciples, but he will have to suffer. We'll see the theme again today that Jesus says, first comes the suffering, then comes the glory. The disciples, see, they were seeing it backwards. They wanted all the glory without the suffering. And we do that as well. So Jesus now in our passage today, we see Jesus begins that journey with his disciples. And along the way, he teaches them some very valuable lessons. But it's all about what it looks like to be a disciple. And there's some hard words. There's some harsh truth that we need to learn today and be reminded of. So we're going to look at all of that. We'll look at it briefly in our time together. But we're going to look at it in three separate ways. So this is the journey of discipleship. It's a journey that Jesus invites his disciples on, but he invites us on as well. Remember when he first called his disciples, he said, come and follow me. Very simple. And now he is at that point, as they finally understand more about who he is, not completely yet, he begins to reveal to them what needs to happen, that he will suffer that he will be rejected, that he will be tortured, that he will be crucified, but that victoriously will rise again. And see, they didn't quite understand it. So he is still mercifully and graciously teaching them along the way. But see, that's just a picture of our life, isn't it? And I mean, we're kind of taking a bird's eye view of Mark chapter 9 today, but it's all wrapped up in this one word discipleship. See, we're on the journey of discipleship, it's about learning who God is and who we are. It's about growing then as we learn. It's about growing and taking that knowledge and putting it in to practice. And then as we are learning and growing, we are then serving, recognizing that we are to serve in humility and keep our eyes focused on God and on others. So we're going to start by looking at that transfiguration. It was a powerful visual sign of the coming glory what they so eagerly awaited and Jesus being so gracious as he was, he gave them a glimpse of that glory to say, look, this is how we're going to start our journey. And he brought the three closest disciples to him, Peter, James, and John, brought them up on the mountain and showed them a glimpse of his glory. A glimpse of his glory as as if to say, I am making a promise to you. There will be suffering first, but this is what we have to look forward to, right? Even the prisoners in that jail in Mexico, they had an idea of what freedom looked like and they were on their way, but they kind of got sidetracked. And we want to make sure we keep our eyes focused on the destination, but not missing out on the beauty of the journey of discipleship. So we'll see some lessons that are important for the disciples and important for us today. So I want to read this first section to you. Now, this is um, the chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Mark, but just the first 13 verses. And this is mainly the, the picture of the, what we call the transfiguration. When Jesus is transformed, not just kind of looking different, but transformed completely into um, his glorified body. And he gets a picture of that to his disciples. And this is our section called Learning. So again, we're looking at this whole passage in three separate sections in the context of our core values learning, growing, and serving. So part one is learning, verses 1 through 13. It is about the transfiguration. So it says this I'll read just the first 13 verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. He led them up on a high mountain just by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah, also with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't even know what to say because they were all terrified. And so a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen. And then it says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And so they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So let's look at this first section first. And so the transfiguration of Jesus. Again, they were on the move. So they're starting on the mountain. Jesus is beginning to take them on their journey to Jerusalem. And see, he decides to start on the mountain. And in the transfiguration, gives them a glimpse of his glory. Now, just as a note, it says in our passage, after six days, in Luke's account, if some of you have read it, um, it says about eight days. It's not an error there. It's just the way that they counted differently. Luke counts two extra days, one at the beginning and one at the end when the message was given and the actual event. Um, but Mark, in his writing, again, he's very, um, very a matter of fact, right? And he's sort of uh, one that writes to say, you know, we're going to be immediately getting there. He says... After six days, and so he counts just those. I so don't want you to get tripped up on that. But after six days, it says they go up to this mountain. See, so remember, Jesus was telling them, "Look, my disciples, my friends, you seem to want all of the glory without the suffering, without the commitment to being my followers." And so he begins to then tell them what needs to happen. But first. He shows them a glimpse. Again, it is a way of making a promise. See, Jesus shows them for their benefit, for it to be a little bit clearer for them about who he is and about what is going to take place. He wants them to keep their focus on the truth. This is our section of learning. See, Jesus is always teaching them, but before they begin their journey to Jerusalem, he says, let me remind you of some important truths how is it as disciples today in the year 2018 how do we learn the truth about who God is how do we remind ourselves of the promises of God and what is to await us in our final destination to help us along our journey where do we go for that truth it's God's word we go to the scriptures and we are reminded of who God is, reminded of the truths about his very nature, reminded of the fact that we are to keep our eyes focused on him, the fact that he reveals himself to us, we do it in his word. We look to his word to see his promises, his promises about how much he loves us, about the spiritual gifts that he gives us. And just like Jesus gives them this glimpse before they head out, we have the very word of God to be a reminder to us. We also have the testimony of others. We got got to share that on Wednesday night. We got to share a testimony, a word or two about what God is doing in our lives. See, we learn about God from others as well, don't we? God puts special people in our lives. And we are then to learn from them as well. See, God puts us together as a church. And he says that he is building his church. And we are growing in him, learning and growing in him. But we are a church. It's not the building, but it's us. It's the people of God. And we are the church that we are to be one. We are to be that one voice, that one body, as Paul calls it. But we are to be a testimony to one another, encouraging each other in our faith. We also have spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts that God has given us through the Holy Spirit to serve one another, to encourage each other. We have the ability to pray. We can pray before our holy God. We also have, of course, the person of the Holy Spirit within us to lead us and to guide us. See, Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of the glory. We can open the very words of God and be reminded of the glory that awaits us, can't we? Yes, we do. That's how we learn. But see that as the passage continues, they're coming down from the mountain, and Jesus again, he tells them, using some repetition, don't we all need to be reminded of things over and over again? We do, right? And so he reminds them again very briefly of what needs to happen, that the servant has come to serve, but he needs to suffer and will die, will be rejected but will rise on the third day. He tells them again, but they still don't quite get it. And they're asking him, what about this Elijah thing? See, they were schooled in the Old Testament. They knew the Scriptures, and they said, what about Elijah? And you can just see Jesus saying, I thought we covered this. But it's okay. Did it again. Remember, he fed the 4,000 after he fed the 5,000. He's doing it again for their benefit, and he tells them, he says, basically, as we had covered earlier and as he taught them, you know what, yes, it does correctly say that John the Baptist was the one. He doesn't say it outright, but he alludes to it because elsewhere he does say it, elsewhere in the Gospels. But that John the Baptist was the one who came in the power and spirit of Elijah, the one who came preparing the way. And Jesus says, but I am the Messiah and I am now here. And so yes, you're right, Elijah needed to come. But he did, in the power and spirit John the Baptist did, but yet they were still confused. What are they confused about now? First it was, what about this Elijah thing? What about this, well, I don't understand the suffering, I thought it was just all going to be glory and victory, and now they're confused about the resurrection because Jesus says that he will have to rise on the third day, and now they're confused about the resurrection. And so it even says, it's kind of funny, right, it says that they don't even want to ask him, they're kind of embarrassed. They could get the sense that he's not, maybe not pleased with their progress, in a sense. And, and so now they're kind of confused about the resurrection. And so now we see Mark includes this great story, this great event of Jesus once again healing and casting out a demon, healing a young boy who was possessed, a young boy who was overcome by a demon. And see, so now Mark puts this story in here to say, okay, Jesus was teaching them. He's teaching them and they're learning and he gives them a glimpse of the glory to start their path and discipleship all the way to Jerusalem. But now we see there is some growing pains. They're learning, but now we are seeing how they are growing. And so our next section we're going to read in the next verses, it's going to be about growing in verses 14 to 29. And we see how there is this event when Jesus is called upon to heal the man's son, we see that something had happened with the disciples. This was a teachable moment, as Jesus had many, because they were growing. And, but you know, oftentimes when we're growing, there's some pain, right? Remember when you were younger and you were going through your, your growth spurts and there was those pains? I remember I used to get tremendous pain in my legs. Did you ever get what they call a Charlie horse? Did you ever get one of those? Those are the worst. I used to get them a lot. My parents would say, well, you're just part of growing. And it's like, well, I don't want this. I mean, who wants this, you know? But there's always pain when it comes to growth. There's always an element of that. Because that's how we grow. We grow when there's some kind of pain or suffering, no matter what that looks like in our life. And that is an important lesson as disciples. Jesus is about to teach that to them. He gave them a glimpse of the, of the glory to come, and he's teaching them. But then he sees this opportunity. So what's happening is they're coming down off the mountain, and they see that there's sort of a ruckus going on. There are some scribes, and they're kind of arguing and debating with the other disciples, the other nine who were, who were left there. And Jesus comes upon them and says, what's going on? What are you all you know, arguing and debating about? What are you discussing about? And so basically, the other disciples reveal that there was a man who had brought their son, who was possessed with an unclean spirit, and they couldn't cast out the demons. See, Jesus had given them the power and authority, remember? They had the ability to cast out demons, but they failed, and they failed miserably. And even to the point where the scribes and the religious leaders were mocking them and making fun of them. And so they kind of felt a little dejected and disheartened. And so Jesus comes back with the other three disciples and asks what's going on. Then, of course, we see that Jesus heals the man's son. And again, we won't go through every verse But what happens there is Jesus, once again, as he always does, as he is healing people, he sees that the man has faith. Because the man says, if you can, would you do this? And Jesus basically turns it back to him and says, if you can, if you have the faith. And the man cries out, I have the faith, I believe you can do it. And Jesus heals the son. And they're all amazed. But it's a teachable moment. See, it's some growing pains for the disciples because they tried to do What Jesus told them they could do, but they tried to do it without praying. And there's the end of that verse there, the end of that passage in verse 29 where he basically says, these kinds of things can only be done if you pray. See, he's teaching them some growing pains for the disciples. Why? Because they tried to do it in their own power. They tried to do what Jesus had taught them to do, but they didn't pray first they lacked the faith to do it and even perhaps with Jesus being away with the other disciples during the transfiguration maybe they felt powerless maybe they felt like eh, we can't do this Jesus isn't here holding my hand and maybe they started to doubt do you see the picture for us church is when we start to try to live life on our own without following the lord jesus without praying without reaching out and stepping out in faith we will fail every time and so jesus is recognizing that yes there is some growing pains it is a teachable moment so upon returning from the mountain he is showing them you know what faith is the key for the journey of discipleship it's about faith and through that faith you're supposed to pray Bring it before God, whatever is going on in your life. Whatever in your life equates to that dilemma that the disciples faced where they could not heal this demon-possessed boy. They didn't approach it properly. So as disciples, we are called to be people of prayer. Think about that for a moment if you would. What does your prayer life look like? What does your time of devotion and prayer look like before your God? Is it consistent? Do you have a time before God? Maybe you begin your day or end your day. Maybe you do it on your way to work. Whatever it looks like, there's many ways that we can do that. There's not just one model for it, of course. But the principle is still true for all of us. How is it that we stay connected to God and to his power? Because if we are not doing that on a regular basis, regularly recommitting our life to him in that sense as a disciple, we're going to lose that connection to the power and authority that we have in him and that's what happened with the disciples see jesus had gone away and they lost sight of jesus they started to doubt in their abilities they forgot to pray before they tried to cast out a demon now if you had gone somewhere on a missions trip and somebody came before you and said my son is possessed by a demon can you help me what was the first thing that you would do i think we would pray Maybe some of you would be like, I would run in other direction. But we are to pray. It's just to bathe everything in prayer and see the disciples even forgot to pray. They had taken their eyes off of Jesus. Jesus had given them a glimpse, the, the three disciples a glimpse of the glory. He kept teaching them this is what's going to happen. But they needed to go through, through some growth spurts, some growing pains. And see, the man has faith. The boy's father has faith, but the disciples lack the faith. But Jesus wasn't with them. Maybe they doubted. They tried it on their own. So he basically tells them faith is the key. Then I want to read the last section. And this is um, part three. And I want to um, just kind of skip right to that. I want to spend most of our time on that. And this is verses 30 to 50. And it says this, and this is Mark 9 verses 30 through 50, and this is where Jesus then starts to teach them this all-important lesson on discipleship, as he says, look, it's not about us, it's not about getting all the glory, that he says, I am the Messiah and I have come to serve, and you are all servants as well. We are to serve with all humility, keeping our attention and our focus on others. So let's just look at that for our last um, few minutes together. Verses 30 to 50. I want to read it. We're going to talk about what this idea of servanthood looks like for a disciple of Jesus Christ. It says this in verse 30. They went on from there, where they were with the healing of the boy, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. But see, they did not understand the saying, and they were even afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, he called the twelve, And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So John said to him, teacher, you know, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us, he is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, then you should cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with, with one another. Pretty clear, right? I mean, there's a lot in there. Some harsh words, again, maybe not a passage that I would choose to preach on but one of the beautiful things of going through books of the bible we don't want to skip over anything and so verses 30 to 50 some really important teachings of jesus but please for our context and our purposes let's keep this in mind church that we are taking this view of this passage in light of in the context of discipleship very clearly you can picture the scene jesus is now on the way they left the mountain they're making their way to jerusalem and jesus is is teaching his disciples how to be disciples. He knows he has limited time left with them. And he wants them to understand even these really hard truths. So let's look and see what he is teaching his disciples and what it means for us today. Okay, Our final part. We saw Jesus is teaching them, so we're learning, and he gives them a glimpse of the glory, and then he is um, teaching them about growing and how they need to grow in their faith trust in him if they are to be his servants and now he talks to them about serving he says that we are to keep our eyes and keep our focus on that eternal glory but all the while we are serving so again verses 30 to 32 he tells them what must happen to him again he is repeating himself because this is so important that they begin to understand there's going to be suffering before the glory so they start to argue amongst themselves who is the greatest. Did you ever walk into church and look around and say, hmm, yeah, I think I'm the greatest one here? No, I haven't heard any of you say that. But it's kind of silly, right? And we laugh like, well, we would never think of that. But it's what the disciples were doing. And, you know, we, we kind of laugh at it because we see ourselves in the disciples because here it is, the transfiguration. Think of all that's happened already in, in their relationship with Christ. And then we just see the transfiguration... And Jesus heals another person that's, that's um, uh, possessed by a demon. And yet they go along just quietly talking about themselves, talking to themselves, hey, who do you think is going to be the greatest? Who's going to get all the glory? Yeah, and Jesus is just thinking, like, who are these disciples? Who chose, oh yes, I chose them. Yes, he did. Right, but they still didn't get it. But that's why we love the disciples, don't we? Because we see so much of ourselves in them. Time after time, God is so good and gracious and merciful to us in our daily walk with him. And time after time, we, we kind of drift and forget about all that goodness and all of that glory and all the ways that he has blessed us. And then we just start asking these silly questions and we bring our focus see back to ourselves. That's what happens, really. And that's why the nature of all of our sin is pride. Because we take the focus off of him and others And we turn it back to ourselves. That's what happens. And so Jesus is then teaching them, look, I have come to serve. And you're my followers? You want to be my disciples? Then you have come to serve as well. So don't even think about who's the greatest. It should be just the opposite. It should not be just who is the greatest. It should be Jesus is the greatest. And let's keep our focus and attention on him. So Jesus, again, is teaching them about discipleship. But this time, he's saying, look, we are to be humble. You want to talk about who's great? Well, let me refocus you. How about recalibrating your, your whole vision for what this is going to look like to be my disciple? It's about humbly serving me and serving the Father and serving others. He said, we have been called to serve so he calls a little child he uses a child as a living illustration jesus did that often he taught in parables and he taught with different you know illustrations so this time he gets a small child who was in the crowd obviously and pulls him sort of in the middle and he kind of puts his arm around the child and he basically says this is how you be my disciple you imagine they were probably confused and he goes on to tell them that this is the kind of faith you're to have and you are to make have devotion to me just like a child does to his parents. It's really what Jesus is saying. Let's have that childlike faith. Let's be like them. It says he took a child, put him in the midst, and taking the child in his arms, verse 37, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not only me but the Father. He's saying just approach Others, like children, approach me with that childlike faith. Embrace me like I'm embracing this child. He goes, that's what discipleship is about. It's about having that faith. It's about serving. It's not about being served. It's about having that devotion. But then he moves on from there, this this beautiful picture of him and the child. And then he starts using some words that are a little bit harsher. He's trying to get the point across to the disciples. And you know what, church? We need sometimes that rebuking and those harsh words as well, don't we? Isn't that just like Jesus? Some days he teaches us like the little child. And some days he teaches us like the disciples who are supposed to be sharing the good news of the gospel. And he basically says, look, if you miss the point of this, people aren't going to hear the good news life is at stake this is a matter of life or death he's telling them so he goes from teaching them through the illustration of a child to say now this is a matter of life or death and so what happens is john says to him you know we saw this other person like not one of us casting out demons in your name we tried to stop him like hey he's not one of us again focusing on themselves they were talking about who's going to be the greatest they say who's this outsider And Jesus goes on to rebuke them. He says, don't stop him." He says, for one who does a mighty work in my name, he goes, soon afterwards, there's no way that he's going to be able to deny me. That's what he's trying to teach them. He goes, you're either for me or against me. Let's park there for a second. Jesus really makes it black and white, doesn't he? He says there's no in between. You're either my disciple or you're not. What do you think about that? It's pretty hard-hitting. He says there's no in between here. There's no gray area. You don't just wake up one day and just say, ah, oh, maybe, maybe I will today. It's a decision we make every day to be his disciple. But Jesus is saying, look, This is so important. This is a matter of life or death, meaning that our salvation is secure, but God is using us as his disciples to then share the good news with others. And we don't want to drop the ball on that. And so he's trying to teach his disciples, look, here is the picture of it. So he says, don't even stop those outsiders. That's like us judging other churches and other Christians. Oh, look at the way that they worship. Look at the way that they do. What version of the Bible do they use? Oh... They're like those kinds of Christians. Jesus is trying to say, look, we need to be unified here. We're on our way to Jerusalem. He's, teach, he's teaching them these important truths about being disciples. He says, we need to be unified. Maybe there's other believers who worship a little differently. Maybe their methods of evangelism are a little bit different. If they're doing it in my name and they're truly believers and they're doing it, you know what? I'm going to get the glory. So don't you stop them because we are all in this together. This is church with a capital C is what he's saying. So then he goes on to give some some harsh words here. And he says in verses 42 to the end, the last eight or nine verses, he talks about being tempted to sin and he's basically saying, look, this is the bottom line. I'll read a a few of these verses. But uh, just in our last few minutes before I close, he says this. He's telling them, look, this is how serious it is. You're supposed to be salt. Now back then, salt wasn't like it is today. It could lose its saltiness it, did, it preserved. They use it for the same things we use today, for flavoring and preser- you know, preserving foods. But, so we get the illustration. But it could lose its effectiveness. And so Jesus saying to his disciples, he's saying, look, you are like my salt. You're supposed to be attractive to the people around you so that they hear about me. And you're supposed to be my representative's He says, but if you're losing your saltiness because you're not acting out in faith, you're trying to do things on your own, you're worried about who's the greatest, you're trying to just be so, you know, exclusive that you can't even, like, you know, mingle with other Christians, even though they're doing things in my name. He's trying to get this picture across, and he's saying to them, look, we're all salt, but you don't want to lose your saltiness. Now, let's be clear. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. Again, that destination is secure, right? But what he's saying is that you can become ineffective as a disciple. You can become ineffective as my follower. If you're not doing things in my name, in my power, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be effective for my kingdom, is what he's telling them. See, they had it all wrong. They had it backwards. They're talking about all the glory, none of the suffering. They're wondering who's going to be the greatest, right? Trying to do things in their own power. And Jesus... He's trying to teach them once again. And so he gives them these hard words. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, like the child, reverting, he's going back to him, he's saying, whoever causes somebody like this little kid to sin, like whoever causes a believer to sin, it would be better if that person had this big stone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. That's what Jesus said. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying to do that literally. But what is he saying? Take sin seriously. For, this, for sin in the believer's life, especially unconfessed sin, leads us astray from our mission. It will be like those prisoners who were kind of got off track when they were digging that tunnel and wound up where they didn't want to be. But see, we know our destination is secure, but he's basically saying, look, as disciples, you can grow to be ineffective. Now, church, we want to be effective disciples for him, don't we? And why? What's the reason? Well, first of all, he created us to bring him glory, to be his worshipers. So it's really all about, I say first of all, really about, that's the most important thing, that we are created to bring Him glory, to worship Him. So God loses out on glory. We rob Him of glory if we are not being obedient and stepping out in faith. And so if we love Him, we've devoted our lives to Him, we recognize that He has saved us and we're thankful for that. If that comes from that heart of thankfulness and devotion, then we're doing it out of the heart of love. See? See? he says then you're a servant and then you're doing it for the right reasons then your focus is put where it should be he says then you'll be the salt that you should be and so he even goes on to say these words he quotes from isaiah in verse 48 he goes this is what it's like he says it's far better for you to enter the kingdom of god with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell in verse 48 he quotes isaiah where their worm does not die And the fire is not quenched. When's the last time you said that to somebody? All right. What's interesting here is that if you noticed in um, most of your versions of Scripture, there are two verses that are not included verse um, 44 and 46. Did you happen to notice that? Um, I have the ESV that we're going through, it goes from verse 43 to verse 45 and then to verse 47. Maybe you didn't pick up on that. Maybe you can notice that later. Simply what it means is this. It's not an error in your scripture. But verse 48, the quote from Isaiah, where their worm does not die and the fire not quenched. In some manuscripts that we have, where, how, where we get our, our Bible from, some manuscripts include that, um, that quote, that verse, two other times. And so some versions have it as verse 44 and verse 46, but the earliest manuscripts that especially the ESV and the NASB versions use for translation, they don't include them. What most likely happened was it was a scribe or scribes who were translating it and they saw how important that that scripture was from Isaiah and they just included it again. Probably what happened, but regardless, it's left out for a reason because the earliest and most uh, respected manuscripts in that sense, don't have it. But it is the same verse in verse 48, so you're not missing out on any scripture, okay? But it is that verse where the, worm, where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched. And so basically that's a picture of unbelievers who are separated from God for eternity in hell. And he's saying what it is, it's inner torment, internal torment, the worm does not die, and outside external torment, fire is not quenched. We don't want internal or external right? As believers, we don't have to worry about it. We praise God for that. But what he's trying to tell his disciples is this, not that they should fear losing their salvation, but he's saying, you know what? I have commissioned you. And he will, of course, we see that at the end of the Gospels. He will commission them, but he's already telling them, look, you're supposed to be my followers, my representatives. You want to go where I go? You want to do what I do? I've given you even the power and authority to cast out demons, to heal sick people that have been sick forever and you can do all this. But he said, you know what? There's life and death at stake. Tell others the good news about salvation in me. For I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus is saying, this is what's at stake. And so church, this is what we should be reminded of as well. Some harsh truth, but this is what's at stake. This is why we are to every day commit to be his disciples, to commit to follow him, to lay down our pride and our will to follow him and his alone because what's at stake is nothing less than the gospel. And so we are the church and as such, we are to be that city on a hill. We are to be representatives of him. We are to be that salt. Now we can, in our disobedience, In our laziness, we can lose our saltiness, which means we're not going to be as effective for him and his kingdom. But out of our motivation to bring him glory, we are to seek to commit to be his disciples and recognize, you know what, what comes along with that? Suffering. There is some pain. There are trials. But we keep our eyes focused on the end, on the glory, the picture that he gave them in the transfiguration. And so I sum it up with this. He keeps reminding them, So they would clearly understand that he needs to come and he needs to suffer and be rejected and die, but he will rise again. He tells them, don't worry about who's greatest in the kingdom. It's all about serving with humility. Let's remember, he goes, keep in uh, in mind the importance of faith and prayer to stay on mission. To stay on mission for him. And so, the bottom line... That pursuing discipleship is learning the truth, growing in faith, and serving others. It requires a daily commitment to serve the Lord and others humbly by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. I read that one more time? Pursuing discipleship is learning the truth. Jesus taught them that. Growing in faith. They had some growing pains there. And then serving others. It requires a daily commitment to serve the Lord and others humbly by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. See how we do that? And if you question, like, how can I be a disciple? Why do I fail each and every day? Why do I feel like I'm losing my saltiness? Well, here's what it requires, a daily commitment. God gives us one day at a time to live. We live one day at a time making that commitment to serve him and to serve others. How? Humbly. By, by, in which way? By faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So serving with humility, by faith, through the power, the Holy Spirit, not of our own. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 5.10. I mean, Peter is the one, he kind of like, you know, he can be hot-headed sometimes. He gets it. Remember last week we talked about how he confessed, yes, you're the Christ. And then he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, what is this suffering thing? Right? That's Peter. But look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10. I think maybe he finally got it, and he sums it up this way. It's a great way to summarize all of Mark 9. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? That's Peter, I think, really getting it. Saying, you know what? There's going to be a time of suffering. But after a little while of suffering, it might seem like forever, but after a little while, the God who is the God of all grace, who has called you, remember, you are his. And he's called you to that eternal glory. Keep your eye on the prize. He will himself do these things for you as you journey along with Christ in this life. He's going to restore you when you need restoration. When you've fallen, he will pick you up. He will confirm you. He will encourage you when you're feeling disheartened. He will strengthen you when you're feeling weak and you're giving in to those sins that make you weak. And then he says, and he will establish you. He will make your footsteps firm. Not only lifts you out of the pit, right? Psalm 40, but he sets your feet upon a rock, makes your footsteps firm. And then why? To him be the dominion. It's all for his glory. That's what we live for for him. That's the picture of a disciple. So he continues to say that to them. The glory will come. Now is the suffering, but the glory will come. You know, and we see that even in Revelation. We see the beautiful glory. And Jesus in all his glory revealing himself to John, who then brings that message to us, that what we have to look forward to. But until then, we follow him in faith, we serve him and we serve others humbly, and we do it not through our own strength, but through his power that he gives us through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are um, very grateful. Lord, this is a lot of your word that we wanted to cover today. There's so much in there, Father. God, perhaps you even will motivate us and, in, and encourage us to, um, to go back uh, to our homes and to read these verses uh, over and over again. But, Lord, we're grateful that... Um, that you give us that model of discipleship, of course, in Jesus Christ and his relationship with the 12. and So, God, would you help us to be more like them in that sense? God, we see so much of ourselves in them and the ups and the downs and they're questioning and, and they're putting their focus where it shouldn't be. But, God, we thank you that you also give us a, a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus being gracious and being long-suffering. But also sometimes needing to rebuke them. And so God, if we need rebuking, if we need convicting through the Holy Spirit, give us the courage to allow it and to accept it. And God, we do want to grow. As we learn more about you every day, we want to grow and grow strong in our faith and trust in you to dig deep in those roots. But Lord, we know that the goal is that we would serve, to serve you and to serve others so that you would be glorified above all else, especially above ourselves. So God, help us to keep that in mind as we daily commit ourselves to you, as we daily pick up our cross and deny ourselves and come hard after you follow. Father God, we are, um, we are eternally grateful, but Lord, along this journey, we need your guidance, we need your help. And so Father, um, be merciful to us as you were to the disciples and show us the way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.